When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the documentary in one from RTE in Ireland. Maureen Carney is an Irish woman living in France, and her story is an incredible one, full of secrets, lies, violence, and courage. Narrated by Roisin O'Dee, this is La Gression. 2017, Paris. An Irish woman is on trial. She's found guilty. Her name is Maureen Carney, and her case makes headlines in France. À une syndicaliste d'Areva, alors elle s'appelle Maureen Kearney, c'est ça, hein? Absolument. Euh, Mathieu, et. Euh, Five years before, in 2012, Maureen had been violently attacked in her home, slashed in the stomach with a knife, sexually assaulted, and left tied to a chair. But she was on trial because police didn't believe her. They said she made it up. They were absolutely convinced that she lied. Had she, as the police said, done this to herself? That's what the verdict of the court of Versailles said. Her crime? It's called denunciation messengère, false denunciation. That's basically another way of saying she made it up. But Maureen Carney said the verdict was wrong that she was violently attacked by someone, that somebody else had done this to her. The day that Maureen received the report that said she was guilty, we found lie after lie after lie inside of it. There were 30-some twisted ideas. If Maureen hadn't done this to herself, then who did? Welcome. Four years have passed since Maureen was found guilty of her own attack. Having since moved out of her home in Paris, she now lives in a small French town. We're just over here. She's not comfortable saying the name of the town. She doesn't feel safe. I, I had to get out of where we were. It's not easy for Maureen to tell the story of her violent attack and what happened after, for many reasons. For years upon years, I couldn't go back before the 17th of December 2012. Everything was a blank. I couldn't access any good memories. I couldn't access any bad memories. It was as if my life began that day for a long, long time. But Maureen did have a life before that day in 2012. She grew up in Castlebar in County Mayo. I had a, a fairly happy childhood. Huh? We weren't a rich family or anything like that, but there was loads of love. Uh, there were many women in my family who inspired me. And in the 1970s, Maureen was drawn to France. I was always in love with France because of cultural reasons. She stayed in France after meeting her husband Gilles while out with friends in Paris. And he said to me that night, I'm going to spend the rest of my life with you. And I laughed. <laughs> 
nearly 40 years later, we're still together. Maureen has two adult children, Neil and Fiona. Hi, I'm Fiona. I'm living in Paris and I'm 34. We are a very, very close family. We are like a, a team, <laughs> a family team. <laughs> I've always think that my mom was the strongest woman I've never known. She was always smiling. She was always positive. In 1987, when Maureen was pregnant with Fiona, she began working with the French nuclear power company based near Paris called Areva, who transform uranium from the mines of Niger in Africa into electricity. The French are world leaders when it comes to nuclear power. By the end of the 1990s, Maureen became a full-time trade union leader within Areva. She was on the Works Council, a sort of internal union in French companies, where employees' interests are represented. She rose up the ranks to become Secretary-General of the European Works Council, Maureen's friend, Sue Cortez. She was just so concerned by the different issues that she was working on that she put her whole heart and all her energy into it. Maureen became a well-known figure in the nuclear industry and frequently met with top French politicians. I hadn't realised it, but apparently I had a lot of clout. that I could ring up a minister and go and see him. The nuclear industry in France is notoriously secretive. Caroline Michel Aguirre is a French investigative journalist who specialises in the energy field. It's very difficult to have information about the nuclear industry. It's like military, you know, it's like a military industry. And Maureen Kearney thought that it was important for the employees and the trade unions to know what's going on. Twelve months before her attack, Maureen had a good relationship with management at Areva. But that changed in 2011, when a new CEO was appointed. He was not particularly liked by the employees. People who worked with him were very much under stress. I had a, quite a difficult relationship with him. Areva's competitors in the French energy business were EDF, Électricité de France, the state-owned utility company which ran Areva's power plants and distributed the electricity, the French version of the ESB. But in 2012, something strange seemed to be happening. Maureen learned of a deal which she thought was potentially harmful to workers at Areva. Uh, I was kind of hearing rumours left, right and centre. I didn't really believe it. EDF were in talks with the Chinese energy company to build nuclear reactors in China in a multi-billion euro deal, which included signing over top-secret technology to the Chinese, technology that belonged to Areva. So I contacted my network all over Paris, trying to get copies of this uh, contract. I eventually did get a copy. When Maureen and her trade union colleagues saw the contracts, they realised that it could cause major job losses at Areva. The contracts were very, very specialised. Transferring technology to the Chinese was just not acceptable. Anything the Chinese took on would mean less work for France and for Europe. We would lose some of the essential skills that we needed to transform uranium. And we were just generally worried about the industry. Maureen worried about the huge job losses that might occur if this secret deal went through. I brought it up in a plenary meeting with Areva. The CEO of Areva 
said there was no contracts, nothing was signed, they didn't exist. And a week later, somebody sent me a photograph of the signing of a contract. In the photo, you had EDF, you had Areva, and you had the Chinese. The more she pushed for answers on the deal with the Chinese, the more hostility Maureen began to feel. I got a couple of phone calls from the CEO uh, who was extremely, extremely angry with me. And at the next plenary meeting, I said to him, you, you lied to us, you deliberately lied to us. And he lost his temper. And he got a chair and he literally threw it across the room in front of 30 people. Huh? The trade union movement in France is strong. Maureen's union, the CFDT, is the biggest union in France. But Maureen was feeling the pressure. I was very stressed out at the time, I remember, because I couldn't understand what was going on. This was serious, what we were talking about. I had decided I was going to uh, step down as General Secretary of the European Works Council. I I wanted out, definitely. I'd had enough. It was at this time that Maureen received a threatening message on her phone, clearly related to her trade union work at Areva and her attempts to shine a light on the contracts with the Chinese. I had gotten some anonymous phone calls. There was one message and I got several people to listen to the message. That scared me, I remember. It, it, it told me I shouldn't be doing, it wasn't, it wasn't said as nicely, I shouldn't be doing what I was doing, that I was interfering in things that went beyond me. In November 2012, a month before her attack, Maureen hurt her shoulder. She was 57 years old and the injury hampered the use of her right arm. I was going into work very early one morning, about seven or half past seven, and I had a whole pile of files and I bent down to scan my badge and my foot went out from under me. I fell flat on my right shoulder. My shoulder was very, very painful. Quite a few tendons were torn in my right arm. I couldn't move the top of my arm. Maureen was coping with the pain of her shoulder, but mentally she was under severe pressure. I was very, very stressed out over the weekend. And then some strange things began happening. Maureen's daughter, Fiona. Often there were a car that was following me when I was taking my car. This car was always beside me. And I told this to my parents and they said, Fiona, you're paranoiac. It's not happening. And it was very strange. And when she told me for the phone call and things like this, I was like, Something something really wrong is going to happen, I think. On Monday the 17th of December 2012, about a month after she injured her shoulder, Maureen was about to begin a busy day. Her housekeeper Maria was due to come as she usually did. I woke up on Monday morning in good form because I did a lot on that day and I was looking forward to it. Huh? So I had recuperated over the weekend You know, the energy was back and I was ready to get up and go again. But just after 7am, an intruder broke into Maureen's home in the suburbs of Paris and brutally attacked her. The details of this violent sexual attack are difficult to listen to and difficult for Maureen to revisit. I always had the television on very loud in the morning so that I could hear it if I were in the kitchen or in the bathroom. Gilles used to leave very early in the morning. He used to leave at about six. 
the last thing I, I used to always do before I left home was to brush my teeth in the downstairs bathroom. So I was doing it that day. I was brushing my teeth. He must have come in when she left. We never locked the front door. He could just walk in. I didn't hear anything. And um, I felt what I thought was a gun in my back and blackness that came down over me. And the, the, the one thing I really remember is my heart. It was beating so hard that I thought my heart was going to come out through my chest. It was just, it was terror, absolute, pure terror. I, I knew I was in danger. The attacker pulled a hat over Maureen's eyes and tied her to a chair in her living room. The one thing I do remember is the knife on my tummy. How sharp it was. And he was kind of scratching. After blindfolding Maureen, the attacker began cutting her stomach with the knife. Uh, after that, I didn't feel anything. All I felt, what I thought, was my intestines on my knees and they were warm and I couldn't move because I was afraid they would fall. I remember that in my head. And uh, once I felt the knife, I, I don't know what went under my head. When you think you're going to die, there's no adjectives, there's no words strong enough to say what's going on. Then the attacker sexually assaulted Maureen. He, um, he raped me with the handle of a knife. So whether it was the same knife, I presume, as the one that he scarred my tummy with, it was barbaric. He said very little, but what he did say was terrifying. The only thing I remember him saying, um, he said it's the second warning, there won't be a third. This is your second warning. Maureen believed that the threatening phone calls in relation to her trade union work at Areva had been the first warning. If this brutal attack was the second and final warning, Maureen feared her life and her family's lives were in danger. I think, I think it was, I, I had to shut up to drop the whole thing. Maureen's attack happened around 7am and lasted less than 30 minutes. The attacker then left, leaving Maureen tied to the chair, the hat still over her eyes and in a state of absolute terror. Wondering if he was still in the house, if he was hiding. Was he waiting to see if I was maybe trying to free myself and if I were, he'd come back and finish me off. What had been done to me could be done to my daughter, my granddaughter my son, my grandson. I made that connection in my head. Around lunchtime, six hours after her attacker had left, Maureen's housekeeper, Maria, arrived at the house. She arrived in, uh, Maria. Apparently, I had fainted. She thought I was dead because I, I just wasn't there. And I said, don't call the police, call Gilles. And she called him. He said, call the police which she did. And then uh, I think the f police and the fire brigade arrived along. It's, it's very, very hazy, all of that. 
Maureen was taken to hospital where her daughter Fiona found out what had happened. I saw her at 11 p.m. And uh, that was a very, very big liberation to to see her. <laughs> she was totally afraid. She didn't understood what was what just happened. Maureen's intestines hadn't fallen out as she'd feared. It had now become clear that in addition to the rape, Maureen's attacker had carved the letter A on her stomach between her navel and her pelvis with a knife. We knew it was something with her work, with Areva. It couldn't be just uh, someone walking on the street going in the house. That wasn't that. And we were sure of that. So, At the same time as Maureen's attack, the French nuclear industry was in the headlines with the disputed contract between Areva, EDF and the Chinese causing waves. A state secret between uh, France and China there on uh, Liberation. Now, back in October, uh, a deal was made behind closed doors. On the one hand, the nuclear giant Areva and the French utilities company uh, Electricité de France, EDF. That contract was never ma- made public. In Two days after Maureen's attack, Areva, the French nuclear company she worked for, issued a statement condemning what they termed a despicable act and said they hoped the investigation underway would shed full light on the causes of the incident, identify the perpetrators and bring them to justice. News of Maureen's attack was out too. A unionist who was working for Areva was uh, attacked in mysterious circumstances while she was trying to get a copy on this cra- contract. Now, according Maureen's to the deal, friend Sue. Uh, I happened to pick up a newspaper and I saw her name. And I was, I was so shocked and um, she wouldn't answer her phone. It took me two weeks to actually speak to her because she wouldn't answer any of her phones. And finally, she answered an email that I had sent to, to Jill, uh, her husband. And then I went to see her. She was out of it. She had a hard time having a normal conversation. She was tired, sitting around, not not wanting to get up or do anything. She was just traumatized, in shock, and in a in a bad state. Yeah. In the days after her attack, French male police officers began interviewing Maureen, asking her over and over again to detail the story of her attack. It was just male officers all the time and they wanted details. It was too hard for me to talk about it. It's beyond what the mind is able to to face. Maureen was also examined by all male doctors, something she found harrowing. I was get undressed, open your legs. They were an intimate gynecological examination. I was examined three to four times by three, four different doctors. They never asked me my permission. I just remember crying all the time. And I remember screaming in my head and that nobody could hear me. Investigative journalist Caroline Michelle Aguirre later got hold of the police report. And according to the police, they could find no trace of an attacker. Instead, they began finding what they believed were inconsistencies in Maureen's story. And no fingerprints. That I had to be lying down on the ground for the scarring to have been done. No traces 
of the attacker couldn't find no DNA. They said that I lied about the sound of the television. No witnesses. The fact I didn't fight back. Not a normal woman would fight back. So there was something not normal about me. The police questioned Maureen's colleagues, who told them she was a serious, committed and respected trade union leader. In fact, Maureen's trade union supported her throughout all this time and through the subsequent trials. But one person painted a different picture of Maureen for police. The CEO of Areva, the French nuclear company Maureen worked for. The police report records the CEO saying that Maureen was a small, unimportant trade unionist who had told herself stories. The CEO said I had been imagining things for months. That I was imagining that there were contracts with China and what I was doing was going to have dire consequences for Areva. Police began to question Maureen's mental state. They discovered Maureen had been the victim of another rape in the 1970s, not long after she first came to France. Her rapist had been found guilty and sentenced to prison. The police also became aware that at times during her life, Maureen had occasionally struggled with her mental health. Could this be an indicator that she was unstable? So unstable as to fake an attack on herself? They asked her friends and questioning started to take a different approach. And very quickly, they started asking my friends, do you think she could have made it up? And all of them said, no, no way could she have made it up. That is just so unbelievable. Maureen's friend, Sue. Somebody called me after that who, who knows both of us and said, you know, people are saying that maybe she did it herself. Do you think that's true? I said, there is no way Maureen could do something like that herself. That's ridiculous. She's one of the, she's got to be the most honest person I know, transparent and ethical. Then, as French investigative journalist Caroline Michelle Aguirre outlines, there was the fact that the details of this case were just so extraordinary. In my opinion, it was very, very difficult to imagine and to believe that in France, in 2012, somebody go into a house to rape, attack and threaten a trade unionist. I remember when I, I start talking about the story of Maureen, most of the people, they ask me, ah, oh, this story is incredible. In what country did it happen? <laughs> and uh, so... There is a kind of, you, you, you can't imagine it could happen. The 23rd of January 2013, one month after her attack, is the date when Maureen officially went from being a victim to being a suspect. They were trying to insinuate that I was psychologically unstable, that I woke up in the morning and that I tied myself up, that I attacked myself. And that's what they were trying to get everybody to believe her. Huh? The police didn't believe Maureen. They were accusing her of making up her attack. Maureen was summoned to the police station. She was read her rights at 8.10am and then questioned by police on the French crime of false denunciation leading to unnecessary research. It's what we might understand as wasting police time. 
they just kept saying to me that it was impossible, that I was attacked. They just kept on and on and on, and I, I, I refused to say that I made it up. I could not lie. Lying for me is, is, is something terrible. In a separate room to Maureen, police were also interviewing her husband, Gilles. They said to Gilles that I had invented everything. He was very much manipulated. He said something like, it could be her, it's a possibility that it could be her. Then he said she should get three Oscars if she's pretending. They kept coming in saying to me, your husband has said he doesn't believe you, that nobody believed me, my family didn't believe me, my union didn't believe me, my friends didn't believe me. I was just in pure dread. It didn't make sense, as I often say. It's like an attack on reason. At this stage, two months on from her attack, the letter A carved on Maureen's stomach was healing, but her shoulder injury from the month before the attack was still painful. The police continued to question Maureen about the attack. Did she tie herself up? Did she carve her own stomach? After hours of questioning, Maureen was exhausted. I hadn't slept for the whole month beforehand. I had lost 10 kilos in weight. My shoulder was really, really sore that day, I remember. At one stage I said to them, tell me what you want me to say. I was really becoming exhausted. And they said, you know what we want you to say. After 5pm, Maureen was left alone until a man entered the room in civilian clothes who she'd never seen before. And he said to me, I don't like people like you. So either you say you made it up or the the term he used was the steamroller of the Justice Department will make sure that neither you or your family ever come out of this. And that scared the life out of me. Maureen imagined terrible things happening to her family. I was prepared to say at that stage I was Jack the Ripper, if it could protect the family. So Maureen attempted to tell them what they wanted to hear. But this confession didn't make much sense. I don't know what happened. I must have been delirious. I must have imagined my attack. I can't remember how I prepared for all this imaginary attack. Maureen quickly tried to retract what she said was a forced and false confession, but the police persisted. It seemed they had what they needed and charged Maureen with the crime of false denunciation. That year, 2013, Maureen couldn't bear to stay in her house where she'd been attacked. So together with her husband Gilles, they sold their home in Paris and moved to this little town in the French countryside. It was a house and it looked safe. And I couldn't see how anybody could get into it. And were you hiding at the time? I was hiding. I was really, really scared. Even moving house and home to a different part of the country didn't allow Maureen to fully escape the trauma of what had happened. Being tied to a chair during the attack was something that stayed with her. I didn't have chairs in the dining room for years. When people came, we had little stools or we pulled in armchairs. For, for years upon years and even now still, I find it difficult to go to a hairdresser because to have somebody behind my back that I don't know is scary for me. French justice moves slowly. 
it would be four years before Maureen's trial eventually took place. Typically in France, if cases aren't heard within three years, they can expire. But Maureen wanted her case to go ahead. She wanted to prove her innocence. After about a year, there was still no news. And I contacted my lawyer and I said, listen, this is ridiculous. Something's got to happen. And I remember he said to me, you know, Maureen, if nothing happens for three years, then you're automatically acquitted. I said, I don't want that. I, I said, I can't accept that just because they didn't go through with it. As Maureen awaited trial, she was left to wonder about everything, of how this all happened, the attack, the investigation. How would it all end? A prison sentence was even a possibility. It was infernal. It was like hell. Whilst awaiting her trial during those four years, Maureen was diagnosed with severe post-traumatic stress disorder. I was terrified practically all the time. I lived in dread. I'd go down the hall to go out the front door. I'd spend half an hour in front of the front door. I couldn't open it to go out. Or I'd go out and then I couldn't come back in again because there were so many places to check to make sure that nobody got in in while I was out. Maureen's daughter, Fiona. She was in her mind all the time. If we were taking a knife in the kitchen, if the knife was similar with the one she was attacked with, she was panicked. The attack on Maureen and the investigation that followed affected Maureen's entire family too. Her daughter Fiona also struggled with her mental health during this time. (laughs) I made a big depression. (laughs) I, I haven't been able to work for like a year and a half. I was very afraid of my own safety. I've passed many nights uh, not sleeping uh, with a knife in my hand, waiting, looking at the door, just waiting that the sun uh, goes out. (laughs) And uh, that was it. Finally, in May 2017, five years after the attack, Maureen's trial for false denunciation was held in the court of Versailles. I was very scared. Very much so. There was no jury, so a judge would deliberate whether Maureen attacked herself. Maureen was in a fragile state, and from the very beginning of the trial, she was unnerved. Went into the courthouse, and it was a very, very, very hot day. And I had a little bottle of water, and I was taking a sip from it. And the judge walked in, and she kind of she said, who do you think you are? This is not a picnic ground. And I was frozen in terror. I couldn't move. The prosecution built their case against Maureen on the police investigation, which had found no evidence of an intruder and no trace of a threatening phone message. The police file also included that it was more likely Maureen tied herself to the chair This despite doctors testifying that Maureen couldn't use the shoulder she'd injured the month before the attack. Maureen's friend Sue. She could not move her shoulder and she had lots of doctor's reports about how absolutely impossible it would for a person with with shoulders that worked to, to tie themselves to a chair. The judge also heard about Maureen's rape in the 1970s. Journalist Caroline Michelle Aguirre. 
This poor woman was raped twice in her life, uh, but in their mind, um, this first rape um, left her weak. And there was something terribly, terribly unfair, because a woman who's attacked, that means she can never be attacked again, ever. She won't be believed. It's a strange thing to come up, come up with stuff like that. Huh? What the court didn't hear was Maureen's version of events, which could have explained many of the so-called inconsistencies. The court didn't hear that because Maureen fell apart on the stand, as her friend Sue remembers. She was so upset she could hardly speak. And that's pretty obvious after something that horrible happens and you uh, block it out of your mind. I, I kind of went into myself and I felt as if I was going, I was being attacked again. I lived through the attack a second time, definitely. Journalist Caroline was also in the court. It was horrible. She was like, uh, her arms in her breast. She was crying a lot. She couldn't express herself. She couldn't find the words. Her daughter Fiona wept as her mother was questioned. <laughs> I think I've never been as angry as I was this day. Because as soon as we arrived, she was guilty. She was guilty. There were no, no humanity in this place. Everything was against her. Five years on from Maureen's attack and a verdict was in. She was found guilty of false denunciation, given a five-month suspended prison sentence and a €5,000 fine. They said in the conclusions that I tied myself up with three fingers of my left hand without ever using my thumbs. Maureen's daughter, Fiona, she felt betrayed, betrayed by the justice, betrayed by her work. I thought about suicide because at one stage I said to myself, it's the only way to protect the family is if I am no longer around. And then I actually got a thought and I said, it'll make it worse for them. I can't do that to them. And that's what kept me going. Not being believed when you're telling the truth is the most horrifying experience. After the guilty verdict in 2017, Maureen felt she needed help and turned to a military psychiatrist who was a specialist in PTSD. And he started asking me questions. And literally, after about five minutes, he said to me, you can stop, I believe you. And I said, why do you believe me? And he said to me, it's the way you tell it. I know it's not made up. But it was great to be believed. I never forget the way I felt at that second. And he said to me, he said to me, God, it's diabolic what happened to you. Diabolic. And I said, yeah, I had never thought of that word, but that's what it is. And he said, now I can help you move on. And it was a question of accepting what had happened. I'm going to get my power back and I'm going to move forward. And that's what he helped me to do. Now that Maureen was able to speak clearly about what happened to her, she was able to mount a new fight and claim back her good name. 
she decided to appeal the court's decision. And with support from her trade union, Maureen was able to get one of the top lawyers in France to fight her appeal. And if my union hadn't paid all the lawyers' fees, I would never have been able to go to the appeal court. My name is Hervé Temim. I was Maureen Kearney's defence lawyer before Versailles Criminal Court of Appeal. You know, I don't know her very well, but uh, I liked her very much. I don't know exactly why, but the first time I was uh, really uh, in empathy with her. And uh, to me, it's, uh, she has a great art. She, she is very honest. I thought she was uh, innocent. I thought that uh, she told the truth. Hervé was shocked at some of the findings of the first trial. We found many, 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 many mistakes which were very important. First, DNA evidence had not been exploited by the police. It had been sent to the lab but never came back. The police, as well as the judges in the first trial, falsely claimed that there was no DNA evidence of a third party in the house the day of the aggression, but in truth, the DNA results were never produced. It's totally crazy. Hervé also found issues with the fingerprint reports and with how police investigated the threatening phone calls and warning Maureen received prior to the attack. But the criteria the police used to find this phone call were so narrow that they had no chance of ever finding it. The police had said nobody saw anything suspicious outside Maureen's home before the attack. But Hervé found that not to be true. Another possible lead that had never been investigated was the presence of a white van in front of her house the day of the aggression. A neighbour had told the police that he had never seen this van before. When the court appeal date arrived in September 2018, Maureen's trade union colleagues stood beside her on the steps of the courthouse. They really got together and they arrived along with the courthouse and they had big banners and they had flags. And they actually, outside the courthouse, they sang uh, Bread and Roses. It's a song from the miners in the UK. Bread and roses, bread and roses. It was very, very touching, yeah? This time, Maureen could tell her side of the story. She had been believed by her therapist and now had the words to describe what happened. She felt strong. I was able to answer all the questions this time. I mean, the appeal court threw out everything that the police reported that happened on the day. They said uh, for them it was obvious that my confession was coerced. In Maureen's appeal, evidence emerged of an almost identical attack where the wife of another whistleblower in the French energy industry had been raped and had a knife carving drawn on her body. During the investigation, it was discovered that a few years prior to Maureen's aggression, the wife of a whistleblower had been attacked and a coffin had been engraved with a knife on her stomach in a fashion that resembled what Maureen had endured. On the back of her own powerful testimony and the discrepancies Hervé found in the police investigation, Maureen won her appeal and walked out of the court an innocent woman in the eyes of the law. They went against everything that the first court ruled. It was quite uh, amazing. Her daughter Fiona remembers. The appeal was a good day. I feel happy, very happy. It was like a liberation, like, a, OK, so now we have the right to, to live again. <laughs> so, yeah, 
new life from this day. <laughs> it was in November, we were waiting for the verdict and I was contacted and um, I was acquitted. Like a friend's here and everybody started, you know, jumping and shouting and Gilles got a bo bottle of champagne and I felt like worrying, I'm destroyed. You know, it's not because you, uh, I was acquitted that suddenly everything is hunky-dory. That's for sure. After Maureen was cleared of all charges, there was a possibility of a new police investigation to reinvestigate her attack. But the police team that had brought charges against Maureen were now the same police team assigned to the new investigation. And with the DNA samples they'd collected from the attack gone missing, it seemed very unlikely that her attacker would ever be identified. With the thoughts of having to face the same policeman that charged her, and with the odds stacked against ever identifying her attacker, Maureen decided against any further investigation. She simply wanted to move on with her life. For me, that's a really horrible part of this story. Maureen's friend, Sue Cortez. She was informed that it would be exactly the same team and um, she would have to go through it one more time. And so she's the one that said stop. She's the one that said, I can't do this anymore. It's been too many years. Maureen Carney's attacker has never been found, never been brought to justice and probably never will be. Maureen continues to believe that her work as a trade unionist in the French nuclear energy industry and what she uncovered was the reason behind her attack. That, I don't know. What, what did I put my finger on? I often wonder. I probably put my finger on a lot more than what I realise. After her attack, Maureen never returned to work at Areva. Many of the things Maureen feared would happen as a result of the secret contract she uncovered did happen. 5,000 people were laid off. Um, Areva doesn't exist today. It disappeared completely. Contracts were signed between the Chinese and the French and they've gone ahead to build nuclear reactors together. What Maureen has gone through since her attack in 2012 is hard to comprehend. But she's found a way with the help of therapy, to, as she says, take her power back and to be happy again. Therapy is what I needed and I still need. I'll never be the same woman again, that's for sure. The get up and go that I had, nothing ever scared me. And I'm very proud of my mum because uh, I think she's the strongest woman I've never known and, um, and I love her and, she's the, and I'm proud of her, really. <laughs> For many years after her attack, Maureen couldn't even bear to have chairs in her house. They triggered the memory of her attacker tying her to a chair. Back at home with her husband Gilles, things are returning to some kind of normal. Even chairs are back in her life. These are transparent, light dining room chairs because I wanted chairs that were really light. In case I was ever tied onto a chair again, I could walk. So we have a real dining room now with chairs. Today, Maureen Carney volunteers with women who have suffered domestic abuse. She also works part-time in a children's Montessori and likes to walk in the countryside around her new home. She's also looking forward to returning to Ireland on holidays.
The reason why I talk about this story is I also want to give hope to women that you can make it through, that there is such a thing as resilience, to keep on going and to believe in yourself. It took me a long time, but I made it. You've been listening to L'Agression, an RTE documentary in one production, narrated by Roisin O'Dee. The documentary was produced by Roisin O'Dee and Nicolene Greer. And that's the final documentary in our 2021 season. Until next time, thanks for listening.